Hi, friends. Welcome to God Stories. I am your host, Cassie, and I am so glad that you're here with me today. This is where I have on my friends, both new and old, to share their God stories. From the big, aha, miraculous, life-changing moments to the ordinary, everyday moments that are oftentimes the very extraordinary, life-changing ones. My hope is that you're encouraged. My hope is that you're sometimes challenged. My hope is that you feel welcome and enjoy today's episode. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Welcome to God Stories. (laughs) So my guest today is my friend Jordan McMillan. And why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, well, my name's Jordan, um, middle name Marie, last name McMillan. Um, I am a cool 34, just had my, 34 years of age, just had my first baby nice. uh, in February with my lovely, studly, sexy husband, Ryan. We've <laughs> um, been married for uh, almost five years in January. Wow, nice. Which is nuts. Because um, it feels like we've been married for 100 years, but also for 100 seconds, if that makes sense. <laughs> totally makes sense. Um, super in love. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, we, you and I met at church. We met at church, I don't know how many years ago. It's yeah. been a, quite a few now. Yeah. She then started teaching our class with my husband, Alex, our Sunday school class. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, it's funny because I knew Alex visually because I've I've actually been at Second Baptist. I calculated this the other day. I've been in Second Baptist for twenty one years. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I might be like one of the longer tenured people like in our Bible study class. Probably in terms of in terms of like just being at Second Baptist. I mean I lived all over the world. Like I, I as you know, like lived in the Middle East and lived in France and I lived, I went to school in DC and I've done all of this kind of stuff, but like Second Baptist has, oh, this is not a pitch for Second Baptist, by the way, but it's <laughs> no, always it's not. My, it's always <laughs> but it's our home. connection. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and I have place. to tell you, my sister in law, Carrie, calls you Mrs. Fit. So if I'm describing you to her, I just have to say Mrs. Fit and she knows who I'm talking about. And she secretly hopes that you will admit today you're a CIA agent since you do, do know so many amazing languages, lived all over the world. So I don't know if you're going to admit that to us yeah. today, but yeah. I'm excited to hear more of your story. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So where did you grow up? Where did you start life? Um, I was actually born in Texas, okay. um, but uh, grew up and was raised in Southern California. California. So I think I was like less than two years old when my parents, my brother and I moved to Southern California. So I am a, uh, that's why I don't have the, the Texas accent because <laughs> um, I grew up um, in the beach. Nice. So, yeah, totally. Do you like the beach? Uh, no, because I'm super like pale and can burn <laughs> um, <laughs> to protect my skin. Yeah, um, I feel yeah, you on so that. I'm, uh, I mean, the beach is nice. Uh, I wish that, like, I was much more of, like, that um, California Baywatch volleyball <laughs> playing type. Are there a lot of people like that, really? I don't, th- I think they try. <laughs> yeah. I think it's more about, like, let me appear to be this way, and then, like, <laughs> I'm secretly going to spend five minutes out here and then go take a shower and watch Netflix. It's all for the Instagram photo. <laughs> I think so. Okay. <laughs> I mean, everything is nowadays, right. I feel, but... Yeah, um, and f- so that's where I grew up is is Redlands, California. Okay, and then you yeah. lived there till you're 18, or no? Uh, so uh, we moved a little bit around Southern California, <clears throat> but um, when I was 
12, actually, um, my brother got diagnosed with a very acute uh, type of leukemia um, called acute myelogenous leukemia, AML. And um, it really is like a weird um, thing. I mean, on the side, there was two years before he was diagnosed, um, a boy at our school, which we went to a very small private Christian school, um, to keep us in a safe bubble in Southern California, (laughs) um, as per my parents' uh, desire. Um, but yeah, so a boy two years previously had the same type of cancer, AML leukemia. Then my brother got it two years later. And then a girl in my class, which was just directly, we were a year apart, my brother and I. So then a girl two years after his diagnosis got the same uh, type of leukemia. That um, is insane. And it's a very rare type of leukemia to um, to present in that age uh, of child. So typically um, what we heard was that AML presents in like infants, so like zero to two, or ex- extremely old people, like the, the elderly, like 85, 90 plus. No offense to any of your older listeners. <laughs> um, I don't That'd be amazing if I had 85 year olds listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so like it, it's kind of on those ends of the spectrum. And then <clears throat> to have um, three essentially um, 11, 12, 13 year old children um, get the same diagnosis that close unfortunately cancer just rocks your world so much that um that these parents it's not like it's not like Aaron Brockovich where we had some like semi-attractive attorney that could like swoop in and try to help us it's like you know your life just gets upended and so for us our life got upended and we we moved to Houston Um, so he was 11 or 12 when he was diagnosed he was 14 oh 14 okay Um, I was 12 you were 12 uh, yeah, it was actually March 19th, 1999. It was like... You'll it, never forget it. Yeah, you just don't forget those kinds of things. Um, it's funny because like the week... I mean, it's not funny. The, the week leading up to uh, to the Friday diagnosis that he finally got was like a really weird week. He, um, we were both like so active. We were little athletes. Um, she still is, by the way. <laughs> Not like I was. Okay. Um, I was like a, very much a, a soccer player. So now I'm very much a, a weightlifter. But then I was a, a, a really like um, cool soccer player. Uh, my brother was far cooler than I was, though. He was actually like a national team baseball player. Oh. Um, a pitcher. And uh, so like at 14, and people think I'm joking, but like at 14, my brother was throwing an 89 mile an hour fastball. Oh my gosh. Um, he's just like, my parents were bodybuilders. People have wondered if oh, we take steroids. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. it's They didn't give us steroids when we were children. We were just large children <laughs> and we are quite strong. And you had a large... <laughs> Son. And I had a very large son. Yes. yes. Um, very proud of that. No epidural. <laughs> no, no epidural, yeah. Um, all, all natural, baby. Um, and what is your brother's first name? Josh. Josh. And were you and Josh close at this time? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we were, so we were 18 months apart, um, and we were just best friends, uh, like, just the closest. Um so uh, we used, we, we had like a, we shared a wall as you typically do like with your sibling. Um, and we had like a secret language that we made uh. of like scratching through the wall. So we like, depending on the location and number of scratches, it was like you in knew. different words. 
Um, so we could like tell when mom and dad were coming down the hallway so or whatever, sweet. you know, like turn your light off or yeah. something. Um, I love that he had this with you when he was 14, because at that age, I feel like, I mean, I've never yeah. had a brother, but I feel like a lot of boys want nothing to do with yeah, well, sisters, I was, so that's really neat. I was also just very much a tomboy, so I didn't <laughs> I had to sort of like toe the toe the more uh, boyish line of like watching X Men and Spider Man, <laughs> and you know playing. You were the cool the, sister to yeah, hang yeah, out. Yeah. Well, okay. I wanted to be his best friend, so I was like, "Oh, we're playing Connects. Sure, sure yeah. yeah. You want to play Donkey Kong Country? Let's yeah. do it." <laughs> Even though all I would do is like jam the buttons. Like <laughs> I never was very good at that kind of stuff. Um, so that week before. Or you couldn't tell anything was wrong. Yeah, it was like Monday he had baseball practice and I had soccer practice. And he just seemed kind of like, he just had said that he was tired. And then Tuesday he came home from baseball. Like he had baseball. We had practice every single day because um, we were both on club teams and everything. <clears throat> and um, and he came home from uh, practice on Tuesday. And he was like, my legs are so itchy. And we, me and my mom looked at his legs because my dad was, um, on a business trip. He was in New York. Okay. And, um, so we looked and he, it looked like he had like a bunch of mosquito bites on his like ankles and kind of halfway up his calf. And then, um, I remember he was taking a shower and he started screaming and I ran to the bathroom door and I was like, what's, what's wrong? And he was just saying his legs were burning and stuff. And I was like, okay, well, you know, so we just thought, oh, maybe these were random bug bites or something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so then on, so that was like Tuesday, Wednesday. And on Wednesday he started, <clears throat> the, the bites started to kind of get bigger. Um, but they were, they still looked like bites. Um, and so we were just kind of like well, maybe they're spreading before they like go, you know, go away kind of thing. Um, Nothing to bring him to the doctor for yet. Yeah, because it's just kind of like, well, he's a boy. He was just in a whole bunch of grass yeah. and field, you know, because the baseball field was kind of um, out there in right. the middle of nowhere. And so we're just kind of like, well, you know, he he probably got really bitten up by something and he didn't have a fever or anything. Yeah. And then Thursday, he started to kind of get a low-grade fever, and we were like... And the the bites on his legs were much bigger. I mean, we're talking probably, like, um, at that point, like, you know, quarter size or whatever. Um, but that all changed between Thursday and Friday. Um, he went to sleep, and, like, I, I have... We always said goodnight to each other, because we shared that wall. So, like... With a scratch? <laughs> No, this time I actually remember, like, because I was kind of worried about him, because I could, I mean, I'm not, like, a very sensitive person. I never have been all that emotionally sensitive. Um, God bless my husband. Um, But, you know, I was like, there's something, I don't know, I just felt like there was something going on. And um, I remember saying goodnight to him and then going into my room. And the next thing I know, my mom was sitting by my on my bed and she was waking me up and she was, she said, um, she was crying and I could tell immediately something was wrong. And she just said, your brother is not okay. And I have to take him to the doctor because he's not okay. And, um, I need you to stay here. Now this was like the nineties. So I was 12 and she was 
left me at the house. My parents were great parents. Yeah. I'm not doubting that at all. <laughs> but she just left me at the house. Um, was, dad is still on business trip. Dad is still, <clears throat> he's still in New York. Um, we, it was actually like the spring break week, um, at school. So I wasn't, um, so it, it was March, but in, in California you have like your spring break, uh, right in there and then okay. your Easter break a little bit later. Um, and so we were on spring break. It was the last day of spring break. And I was just like, okay, I guess I'll stay here. But I wanted to see my brother. So I turned the corner and I could see that he hadn't moved from where, like literally he was in the same spot. Uh, and there was a, there was like a line of sweat around his body, probably like two inches from his body. It looked like a chalk line, like that they draw. It was really horrifying. And he was like sunken into the bed and he just wasn't moving. And my mom had taken the the covers off of him and the bites had turned into lesions. Um, they were uh, like red and and um, purple and, and they looked like bruises, but like in a weird amoeba type of way. And um, it was really scary looking. And I was like, no matter what age you are, that's scary yeah, super, to see. Oh yeah, and they were they were um, ascending, so they were like starting to get become sort of all over his calves, uh, his calves, and kind of to his knee at that point. And these had started on his ankle, and so um, and you know we I didn't know what anything looked like. Um, it just looked like alien stuff to me. I mean, I was twelve. Um, so he, so my mom took him to, to the hospital, or not to the hospital, she took him to our doctor, um, and I just kind of hung out. I watched Matlock, because that was what I liked to watch when I was a kid. So I watched the Andy Griffith show and Matlock, and then I remember thinking, like, okay, Matlock's over. Like, they have, like, three hours straight of Matlock. Like, where's mom? And she didn't come home, didn't come home. And this was before cell phones, so, like, I was just kind of waiting around um and then it was probably like sometime in the mid-afternoon two or three o'clock that um uh I got the the phone finally rang the kitchen phone with a long cord mm -hmm. that goes all the way to like <laughs> your yep. bedroom and um so I like run over to the the kitchen phone and I pick it up and I remember it I mean it was my dad so I knew that like something was going on because he was like hey Jord and I was like uh, dad, what, hi. And he said, um, your friend's mom is going to come pick you up. Um, she should be on her way. And right when he said that she walked in the front door, my friend's mom, and she was, she had been crying. Like her face was swollen. Like it looked like she had been in a car accident or something. So she comes walking in with this horrible look on her face and I'm listening to to my dad on the phone, and he says, your brother has cancer. And I just remember, like, that was all that I heard for, like, a long time as he was talking. And I was just like, the only person I knew who had cancer was at our church, and she died. And so I was just like, uh... And, you know, my friend's mom is there, and she's bawling and this is so traumatizing because oh, yes. you're 12 years old <laughs> and this all happened in one day essentially where yeah. you know she brought him to the doctor and then found that out hours later yeah 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 I mean if you think about it for for me I mean now that I have a son 
and you have a son, you have children. I mean, think about it from my mom's perspective. Her partner, her love, her companion is in another state. Half, uh, no, not halfway across the country. The entire way across mm-hmm. the country at that point. Um, she is in the doctor's office with her son who has, at that point, he had, I think it was 104 fever. Um, so she's scared. So she's scared out of her mind. And they can't tell her what's wrong. They keep telling her that it's something that's going to kill him immediately. They said spinal meningitis, bacterial meningitis. They said, well, we don't know, but at the rate that it's going, you know, he's going to, he did spike finally. So the the body can only handle 106 fever. And he finally got all the way there. And they were like, we think that he's just going to have brain damage because his brain won't be able to handle how hot his body is getting. So I'm assuming at this point he's now at the hospital. He's not. So he was there. He was still at the doctor's office and they were figuring out how to get him to the hospital. So they could already tell right then and there that he had cancer in the doctor's office in that short of a time. Yeah, but it took a while because, um, I mean, he was there in the morning and they were drawing blood, drawing blood, drawing blood, and they could not find cancer cells. So, and because it was leukemia, it was being generated by his bone marrow. Um, I didn't even know that you could find out that you have cancer in a blood test like that, that quickly. I honestly just don't know a lot about it to know that, but... Yeah, so leukemia is cancer of the blood. Um, so they were looking in the right spot, thankfully. Um, but it, but your blood is generated by your bone marrow. Um, and uh, So he's and at he the just, doctor's office. They find this out. Yeah. And then what happens the rest of that day? So I told my dad and uh, my friend's mom. So, like, at that moment, that was when, like... I be I started to um, age very drastically at twelve. You so had to. I just became much older that that whole year of of my life, um, and so my my friend's mom is just standing there, and my dad is on the phone, and I told her and him, I said I am not going with her. There's no way that I'm going with her, and I'm like a very timid at this point, twelve year old who's afraid of everything and like the most obedient child, and I was just like, I'm not going. There's there's not a chance that you can get me to leave with this with this woman. <laughs> I knew her, but um, now her name escapes me. But she was Cassandra's mom. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, I'm not going with her. And where is mom? And where is Josh? And I'm going with them. There's no way. And so anyway, my dad basically said, okay, I'm going to get your mom to pick you up from her house on the way to the hospital. Okay. So mom picks me up finally, and um, my brother's in the passenger seat, completely knocked out. Um, Just, I think, because his fever is so high. But this was like, she just transported him herself. Knowing my mom, she probably refused the ambulance and was just like, don't touch my son. Yeah. <laughs> just like you refused the lady. Yeah, yeah. Right so, um, but I was just watching my brother and I was sitting in the backseat and I just remember the entire time, I mean, talk about growing up, the entire time that she was driving, because she was very, very, very distraught. And the whole time that we were going to the hospital, all I was thinking was I had my seatbelts I held my seatbelt like this, and I was the entire time thinking, okay, how do you drive a car? The The gas is over here, and the brake is over here. Because when mom, 
when mom starts to freak out, I'm going to have to crawl over the seat and take the car from her. I have goosebumps right now <laughs> that you even thought that. That was all I, that was literally my only focus. I was, I saw my brother. He was unconscious essentially. And my focus was on like getting us to the hospital. Um, and my grandma who was kind of a weirdo, um, had taught me how to drive once in a parking lot, but it was like a very, it was like not a real, uh, driving lesson. So I was trying to recall like, which one's the gas? Is it the right or the left? And then, okay, I think I know how to just, you don't have to shift anything. I think I know how to do this. Um, so we finally made it there and somebody from our church, um, helped get my brother in a wheelchair. Um, he was there, Jeff Evans. And then basically it was like such a, um, such a crazy thing because when you get to the hospital and you're in life critical condition, um, what happens is they just, they, they swarm you and then like a whole bunch of stuff happens. Like one of those cartoons where, you know, two, two animals are just wrestling and it's a smoke cloud and then it sort of dies down and then it's just me standing in a parking lot with a car and no one's around and my brother is being wheeled off and my mom is essentially being carried by this man from our church and I'm just standing there because not not woe is me but I'm sort of not important at that point um so I was just standing there like what am I supposed to park the car <laughs> And is is this my is is this my responsibility or and then finally this guy just comes and takes the key and and drives off with our car and parks it I guess because he didn't steal it <laughs> so he parked it and then I just was like oh okay well I guess I'll follow them so then I follow them in the in the room and go all the way up and get checked in and and it was the same same thing for many. Um, months I would say after that it's kind of the same MO where um my brother is getting all of the much needed attention, uh medical attention, and my mom is hysterical, um, as any mom would be, um, and she had every right to be. And um my dad is trying to manage both of them and I'm just kind of sitting in a corner um by myself. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this, this is insane because <laughs> there's one week where everything is normal. Yeah. Years of y'all being close, everything is normal. And then yeah. in the matter of days, your whole entire life changes for the rest of your life or many years. Yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. So you said you moved to Houston once your brother got diagnosed. So was that that same year that he was diagnosed? You guys yeah. moved? Yeah. So so when he got di- so he was diagnosed on that Friday is when he was admitted. Um, his central line, which is how they administer chemo, got put in on Sunday, and he started chemo that day. Um, when he started chemo, uh, they gave uh, him a seventy percent chance of death. 30% chance of survival. Wow. Um, they said he's probably not going to make it the first, like, three weeks. If he does make it the first three weeks, his chances of death are even higher because it's just a matter of time before this thing kills him. Um, so uh, we really... And, and we were also at Loma Linda University Medical Center. Not, um, not the best place for AML leukemia in an anomalous case like, like his. Um, 
So uh, what's funny is that my, um, or where, where the Lord plays into all of this, um, of course his hand was, was on this the entire time, but my dad had been working um, for a little company called BMC Software. Uh, and that was why he was in New York. Uh, but most of the time over the last maybe six months prior, um, he had been gone a lot, uh, because he'd been traveling and he'd been commuting because his offices of BMC software headquartered here in Houston. Okay. And so he was sometimes staying over the weekend, um, sometimes, uh, having to come on a Sunday. I mean, now that I live the corporate jet setting lifestyle, I totally understand you sometimes have a Monday morning meeting and you got to be there. Um, so as a consequence of that, he had been attending church here in Houston and he had been attending Second Baptist. Uh, and, you know, as you do, you know, people in your Bible study and whatever. So he had contacted them. Um, I don't even know really if my dad continued working, if he took, I'm, I'm sure he took leave for as long as he could. Um, but he communicated with the folks at second that I, you know, I'm not going to see you guys for a while or whatever it might be. Cause my son, um, was diagnosed with this disease. And, uh, anyway, the way that the, the Lord just orchestrates everything, even years in advance to prepare, you know, my, my family for this, um, someone at second Baptist knew someone at MD Anderson and, uh, because he was such an anomaly of having this disease at such a weird age, um, they said, well, we should, we should have you guys apply to MD Anderson and see if we can get you guys in there. I mean, Loma Linda University was doing the best they could, but quite frankly, even I think they would admit that they were killing him, that the chemo that they were giving him was awful, meaning it's brutal. I mean, chemotherapy is just the most horrendous thing you can witness, um, probably besides, um, losing babies and, and things like that. I mean, it's, it's awful. It rips a person's body. And, and I mean, some of it literally will unravel your DNA and, and just, it's, it's gross. It just wrecks you. And Josh was just so sick. Um, and he was, and he was depressed. Uh, and at Loma Linda, they wouldn't let him leave his room. So he was in isolation because he had a particular um, virus, like, and he they just wouldn't let him leave the room. And how long was this for? He was at Loma Linda for uh, six or eight weeks, something okay. like that. But during this time, my dad was working with someone here in Houston, um, whoever they are. We owe them an eternal uh, debt. But um, they got us into MD Anderson. Uh, and then if you can imagine uh, a, a young boy with no immune system, so zero white blood cells, uh, he's not able to fly on an airplane. He has to be hooked up to an IV at all times, but we have to get him halfway across the country. Um, so then again, some person who I still, will, I'll, I'll never know who this was at Second Baptist, had a private jet that uh, they allowed my dad and my brother and I to use, and they flew us from California to Houston. That's incredible, Jordan. Yeah. And does your dad know that person? Probably. I don't know that he would ever say um, who it was. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, it was, it, it was, I mean, there was no other way. It would be a three day trip, right? With a kid with an IV in a van, and it would just be 
messy. Um, and this was something that actually made my brother feel special and was cool. And, you know, he's a 14 year old boy who gets to like, get out of his room and go on a jet. Oh, legit. My mom kidnapped him from the hospital one day because he was so depressed and so upset. She kidnapped her own son with his IV, took him in her minivan, old Bertha is what we called it, and she took him to Taco Bell so that he could eat a bunch of food and then throw it up when he got back. You go, mama. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're, it's not like, it's unfortunate, pediatric cancer is awful, but to me, I think some of the worst of it is pediatrics that are like, like 10 to like 18 that that time frame because there's that major understanding of what I'm missing out on when you're really young I've seen a lot of children um, be really happy in hospitals and it, it just almost bring I mean it brings you to tears watching these children say I'm I'm fighting this and I'm getting my superhero juice or whatever it is and they feel awful but they're so sweet and innocent and they don't know what's going on but when you're that prepubescent and then pubescent age and you're still a kid and you still feel like I should have my innocence and I should have my freedom and I should be able to go run outside. And it doesn't make sense. And... and it doesn't make sense. And I'm not old enough to be able to understand that sometimes this happens, but I'm not young enough that I can just ignore it. And so a lot of like that age um, of cancer patients have severe depression uh, because they just they just feel like my life is over. I mean, that age, you feel like your life is over if a boy doesn't call you back, right? But imagine if you just had cancer at that age. You just feel like, I have so nothing. It obviously not only grew you up, but it grew him up too. Yeah. And he survived that trip to Houston. Yes. And, and so... And he, and he survived his leukemia. Um, praise the Lord. Yes. So he's alive and well today? Alive and well. Um, he is actually... Uh, he and his wife are expecting their first child oh, in February. Yeah. I didn't even remember that he's married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unnamed baby girl is uh, her name. <laughs> her, his daughter's name. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So he when, how long has he been cancer-free for then? So he was in remission as of, I think, 2020, uh, sorry, 2021. Uh, 2001. 2001. Um, yeah. Which so, was how many years after MD Anderson? Uh, that was like, he, he was in treatment there for uh, 18 months. Okay. Um, he, he still had to, so the way that they had his treatment plan was from about March to December of 1999. He was in full treatment. The good thing about MD Anderson is they have a much different philosophy uh, than other places, and you can go home. So you can actually, they try to get you to do outpatient um, chemo unless you're like, unless you're very critical. Um, and there were times that he was in critical condition and he had to stay for periods of time. But for just the administration of his chemo, once he was stable, as stable as you can be on that, um, he was able to go home. Now, we didn't have visitors. We He didn't go anywhere. But he was able to sleep in his bed, you know, play Nintendo, um, see the dogs. Which mentally kind of probably did wonders which, for him. Yeah, which just makes you feel semi-normal as opposed to I'm in this hospital room. There's a person checking my vitals every 90 minutes to two hours. There's a beeping happening. I mean, it's just... 
it's awful. Now, you know, my mom is at that point probably even, I don't know if you can even get higher stress, but I mean, she's responsible for his care at that point. So she was constantly injecting him with, with stuff. Cause he doesn't go to school this whole time. No, he's, he's not in school. Um, so, so she was basically taking care of him. Um, I was, uh, going to school. I was starting the eighth grade, um, in the fall of 99 and started it at second Baptist school. They, um, graciously gave, uh, my brother and I a, I think probably a year free tuition, um, at second wow. Baptist school. Um, and, what uh, a gift. Uh, yeah, it was, it was incredible because we, our family just literally had to go, okay, sell your house, pack up all your stuff, move. We lived in an apartment because we didn't know where to live. I mean, there's nothing is important at that point, except what room is Josh in <laughs> and when's he getting treatment? Um, so, I mean, you know, we all would have lived at the hospital if they would have let us probably. Um, so what was it like after those 18 months when you find out he's cancer free? Oh, it was, it was like, um, you sort of were just going, is it going to come back? Is it really gonna, is it really gone? Um, at that point though, he was, he was just, he seemed, um, so much better. I mean, he... His color was coming back. So he lost 60 pounds in six weeks. Um, if you can just... For a 14-year-old boy, too, is yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, so he was he was skin and bones uh, for much of that year. Uh, and, you know, once he, once he stopped getting chemo, he started to just look better, feel better. Uh, Did you guys stay close? Yeah, you know, it's funny... Um, it it was it was very hard to stay uh to stay close in the same way. Um you couldn't play ball together, you couldn't have your secret language. There's so many yeah. things that got stripped from you. And also I didn't um I wasn't I couldn't drive. And you know, this is Houston, so like you live in Houston and you understand. So we were at MD Anderson and we were but I was stuck in an apartment and then my parent my dad was working or at the hospital and my mom was literally living at the hospital. And so I was just kind of like in this furnished apartment, um, like making grocery lists and like trying to like, you know, um, play soccer by myself on a brick wall. And like, you know, I would eventually like sometimes call my mom or my dad and say like, can you guys come get me or feed me or something? Um, but I learned how to do stuff, you know, a lot on my own, but but in terms of my friend, uh, my, my brother as my friend, um, that was really, I became a Christian when I was eight at vacation Bible school, but at 12 was when seriously Jesus became my friend. Um, cause I had no one else to talk to. I mean, I was in a new city in an apartment complex, having been told my whole life in California that you don't talk to strangers <laughs> and that it's dangerous to, to do that kind of stuff. And my parents are gone and I don't have a cell phone and I don't have a car. And so like, I'm just kind of by myself and, um, and there's a, you know, there's a Bible around. Um, I actually, the, the day that my brother was diagnosed was, an incredible turning point in my faith. Um, because after all that hustle and bustle and I was sort of left behind, um, I've only told this story once actually it was at, it was at a Bible study. 
Um, and I just felt that this, the Holy Spirit was just moving me to tell that story. But, um, but I'll, I'll tell it now because I think it's worth, it's worth sharing with people. Um, so in this hospital room, they had already found out that because my brother was so critical and he wasn't going to be receiving chemo, he needed to be in isolation. My mom, I think had to be probably sedated at some point. I could see her through these double glass doors that I was in the room with my brother and I could see her um, hysterical with with Jeff uh, from our church. And, um, and I was in the room with my brother and they had come in and they had um, twice administered uh, morphine to him. And the nurse... I just said like is is he gonna be okay and she just said well he's he's sleeping right now he's not gonna wake up for a long time and I was like okay um thanks <laughs> that's not what I asked um, but I was sitting and I even remember the exact place I was sitting with my knees up just like an innocent 12 year old child and I'm gripping my gripping my knees with my elbows and I was wearing a Cal State sweatshirt and um, it was cold in the, in the room and my brother was just, I was just listening to his IV and he just looked awful and he was completely unconscious. And I won't, I, I won't say because it's, it was not a thought of suicide, but it was the thought, it was the innocence of the thought that my brother is, is part of me and I can't live if he doesn't live. It, and it had nothing to do with me ending my own life. It was the simple, the, like, if you know any 12-year-olds, now when I think of a 12-year-old, I think, oh, that's a really old person because I was so old at that moment. But I remember thinking, I can't live if he doesn't live. And it was as if the Lord in all of his wisdom, knowing that, the, that, that Satan can take that thought and he can turn it into something evil and awful and self-destructive, the Lord in his just beauty and grace lifted my brother off of the bed. It's probably gonna bring me to tears. <laughs> lifted him off of the bed. He sat up and he had his eyes perfectly closed. He wasn't, he, he wasn't awake, but he sat up in his bed. And I just remember going, what what is it? like he's not supposed to be able to move i mean even i knew morphine was like i mean i grew up in california i knew morphine and the was lady like, just told you he was gonna sleep yeah, for a really long yeah. time and i'm like maybe he's better or something i was just i got so excited because he just sits straight up in bed like like you see in movies and i just said josh and literally it he said to me jordan stop crying I'm going to be okay. And I said, but Josh, you're really sick. You're really, really sick. And he said, I need you to stop crying. It's going to be okay. And I'm going to be okay. And he laid back down. And I was like, I ran out to get a nurse. And I was like, nurse, he's awake. And she was like, you know, how they do with children. I felt like I was in a Christmas movie or something. And Santa's here. And everyone was like, shush, child. Um, Santa's, Santa, sure, he's real or whatever. But I was trying to get someone's attention to say, this just happened. Just like everyone who has an encounter with Jesus, right? 
everyone who has an encounter with the Lord, a real encounter, can't, you just run to tell someone. I'm just like... The, the And no one can take that away from you if they believe you or not. No one can. Yeah. And I'm just... And I had to tell someone. Nope. And I'm not old enough to like... Like be in some sort of drug-induced stupor. I mean, I was 12. I was just innocently sitting there. And there's there's no mind-altering going on in me. There's nothing... Just the Lord intervened and raised my brother up. There's a verse in James chapter 5 um, that talks about sick people. And it says, like, is anyone among you suffering? Um, let them pray. Is anyone joyful? Let them let them rejoice together. Is anyone sick? Um, bring the elders and have them pray. And the prayer of the prayer in faith will raise up the one who is sick. And and it was like that was what I needed at that moment. I never cried the rest of his treatment. Not a single tear was shed, even when he was in ICU, even when he was just being wrecked because he was allergic to something and he was in anaphylaxis right in front of me. And I thought, wow, he's he looks like he's dying. I never cried because I felt like that was Jesus Christ come to me in the best possible moment in my life and he and he he comforted me it wasn't my brother comforting me it was it was the lord jesus and i immediately just after that moment in all of my isolation and all the times that my parents had let's be honest forgotten about me and i don't blame them for that i would too um when my i had no friends when my brother was preoccupied the Lord was always my friend. And from that moment on, I read the Bible constantly because I wanted to hear his voice again. And that's how I became such a Bible nut. Um, that's incredible, Jordan. It's yeah, truly so- incredible. And and that you were 12, 13 years old at this point, that you knew that that was the Lord. Yeah. And that... Well, who else could that be, right? Right. But not everyone would probably know that. Yeah. But I guess since you were eight and had accepted him... You you know you had knew you knew about him at this point, but that's just so incredible. Yeah, it's it is um, it is probably uh, the most uh, real manifestation uh, of God Almighty uh, in my life because it was a physical. It was a, it was something that physically could not happen um, because of how just flat out drugged my brother was. Did you ever tell your brother, as he's an adult, about that? Or I, t- I told him, uh, no, not as an adult. Like, I told him when he was out of the hospital. And I said, do you remember that? And he was like, what? No. Wow. But that was when he was like, no, Jordan, yeah. that's not cool anymore. <laughs> that's <laughs> Whatever. so cool, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So you guys decided to stay in Houston after he went into remission. Is that yeah. in case it were to come back or just you were planted by this point. Well, he had to stay here and my parents um were very well uh planted uh in Texas and were enjoying the no state income tax thing and all of that. Um and we're like, do we really want to go back to California? <laughs> no. Uh and you had a good support system with church now yeah, at this yeah. point. So uh so yeah, so they stayed um and I kind of 
Uh, I went to school in D.C. and... Um, Are you about to tell us this is the part where you became a CIA agent? These are my confessions. <laughs> uh, no. Um, I could never tell you that. <laughs> uh, you went to college in D.C.? I did, okay. yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, spent some time overseas uh, in Tunisia, um, which is in North Africa. Yeah. And then I went to grad school in uh, Cairo, Egypt, and uh, came back, uh, got a job in oil and gas, as you do. Okay, I have to pause you for a second. Okay. How did you go from D.C. to Northern Africa? Was that a desire of your heart? or? <laughs> <laughs> so when I was, um, I studied uh, like Middle East studies with an emphasis on counterterrorism and the um, Israel-Palestine conflict when, when I was uh, in my undergrad in D.C. Okay. Uh, and one of my professors there um, that I took Arabic from uh, were both francophones, so because uh, she's Tunisian, so she speaks French fluently. And um, is that what a francophone is? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so we both speak. <laughs> yes, yes. We are both francophones. Uh, I should have said it like that, then maybe you would have gotten it. Um, but uh, yeah, so we we both spoke French, and she liked my Arabic, and so she was like, "Ah, oh, come to Tunisia, um, come live with um, me and my my father and mother, and on our farm, and um, do some research and whatnot." So I moved there. Um, How was that? It was crazy. Um, it was really crazy because um, I actually lived. Uh, I didn't live with them. They lived. I couldn't get a car. Uh, and I had to drive like to their place or get a ride, um, which in Tunisia you can actually just like quote unquote get a ride, which is horrifying. Like it's real scary <laughs> um, because you're just like I don't know who I'm getting in a car with. Um, it's not but, like Uber in America. No, no, there <laughs> wasn't Uber at the time even. So that idea of like ride sharing yeah. was totally again like the way not I was raised. It was just like don't get in a car. Yeah. With um, so, uh, so I ended up, I was living, um, in a, uh, a, a convent with a bunch of nuns, uh, because that was, that was the only place I could find, uh, because I was very much in Tunisia. I was labeled as the Christian. So they used to call me in Mesaheya, which means the, the Christian, uh, and I, I had to walk down this, this little street every day and they used to like, they would call down the street and say, the Christian is coming. And then, they're mostly Muslim there. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and, and really there was only that Catholic church there because it was a historical monument from the French occupation. So they, they kept it. Um, and because they kept it, the archdiocese or whatever, like decided to use it as a church. Um, and so there was a priest there from Argentina and then there were a bunch of nuns. Um, and I lived in the basement of... And how long did you live there for? Uh, probably like five or six months. Okay. Um... And then you moved to Egypt? No, then I moved back to, to Texas. Okay. Um, my, my parents, uh, needed some help with one of their businesses, so I came back and helped them set up one of their businesses, uh, and then I moved, uh, to, to Cairo, and, and lived there for how long? Uh, two years. Okay. Yeah. So did my master's there at uh, American University in Cairo, and uh, that was better than Tunisia in some ways, but also worse in some ways. The harassment in Egypt is way worse, um, and I actually ended up dyeing my hair really dark uh, brown, and um, 
trying to like stay out in the sun more. <laughs> To like darken so my skin. It did not work. <laughs> it was still an eyesore everywhere I went. Um, and very much looked like uh, like uh, I didn't belong. Um, so did you not enjoy your time there? Egypt was really hard. Okay. Um, Tunisia was hard spiritually. Egypt was hard just physically. Um, it's weird. I was very sick when I was there um, all the time. Um, I actually... Uh, I actually almost died when I was there because I had a a really terrible staph infection. I, I used to go running in the street, not like, like a child, but like actually run, you know, and, and run outside. Um, it's not the cleanest place in some of the places that I was running. And um, I ended up getting like a blister on my foot one day. Anyway, so I was out running and, and it turned into a staph infection. I didn't know about it. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> I also had mono at the time that I got randomly in Egypt. Also, I got ringworm in Egypt on my face. So you don't want to really go back. And I wasn't rubbing my face on like dog bottoms or anything. <laughs> so I'm like, how did I get what? what? In the world? I got ringworm on my face. I got mono in my Have system. Have you been back yet to redeem all? <laughs> no, I'm like, it was so nuts. And I got staph infection. Then it was like swine flu. Remember when swine flu? Was I got okay? it. I got swine you flu got back swine when flu? that was a thing. Okay, so this was the, H1N1. Yeah, so this was at the height of H1N1. And I'm like dying of a staph infection and I'm on the phone with an American doctor who's telling me I have to find someone with penicillin like immediately. My roommate goes and knocks on doors all over the place asking for penicillin finds incidentally you can get penicillin over the counter in egypt (laughs) um seems safe (laughs) so somebody just gave her a bucket of penicillin and literally she just gave me a ton i was hallucinating i had such a high fever i was like hallucinating anyway so that was like in egypt that's your egypt experience (laughs) yeah it was totally nuts oh and oh oh i was plagued with massive uh uh what do you call them um uh gut uh i would have like uh worms like parasites parasites there you go um, okay so you're talking about all this and you can laugh about it now but you obviously weren't <laughs> laughing about it then no no i i was not um because, especially because like you're just in a foreign country and it's really difficult to 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 do things and to navigate and healthcare is different there and all that kind of stuff so so you were ready to move back after your degree was done totes my goods. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like yes please get me a job in the states and then you came to Houston right I came back to Houston um, to hang with the fam detox. For a <laughs> Um, I got on like six rounds of antiparasitics uh, and cleansed my body. And then... uh, I want to fast forward to how you got involved with... Okay, because I don't know how much time went in between, but you have a heart for siblings that have have cancer. Yes. Or their sibling has cancer. Yeah. So did that... Was that impressed upon your heart in this time period? Yeah, it was actually after I married Ryan, um, after I married my husband. So, um, so you moved back to Houston after Egypt, and then you met him how long after that? I met him that? probably like two years later. Okay. Um, we met um, doing mixed martial arts. <laughs> <laughs> She's Mrs. School. Fit, guys. <laughs> to be fair, I was at the gym first. Okay. Then Ryan came. <laughs> I remember his first day and his, uh, his trial, as they call it, um, when you have a black belt that uh, takes you through the basics and I remember I was 
um, I was in a private boxing session at the time and I, I took a break from the boxing to, to watch him and I was just like, that guy's never going to amount to anything. <laughs> like, who Little is, did you know. Who is this chum who came in here and thinks he's so cool? Because he was like really intense. Um, and uh, anyway, so we didn't speak for a long time for about two years because I thought he was too attractive to be nice legitimately um he's very attractive and i was just like wow there's no way that he's a there's no way he's a gentleman you know what i mean he gets around town um and he thought that i was just an awful person because i never spoke to him so uh finally uh we we kind of uh connected at watching like a ufc uh fight together uh, with a whole bunch of people and um I hadn't seen him for a while, and he had put on about 25 pounds of muscle and grew a beard. Um, and I was like, okay, all right. You might amount to something. <laughs> Maybe. With my help, you might amount to something. Uh, so I kind of uh, talked him into asking me on a date, and then we were inseparable uh, since. But um, And how old were you then? Oh, gosh. That was so... I'm 34 now, so I was probably 28, 29. Okay. Yeah. Because I remember you telling a story in our class once about you praying for a husband, but you were never leaving your apartment. Oh, And yes. so the delivery guy delivering your Chinese food or whatever knocked yes. on the door, and you were excited, thinking... I was like, Lord, is this it? Is it, is it, is <laughs> it the guy from... Like a 12-year-old Chinese <laughs> delivery guy, yeah. not your husband. Right, right. So the guy from Imperial Express did not a husband make. Um, not mine. Yeah. I'm sure he made a lovely husband for someone else, but And little did me. you know, Ryan was in front of your face for a couple years. Yeah, and I just had no idea. Um, but I was, uh, I was really proud. Praying for the Lord to put um, a, a, a nice man in my in my path, and he, um, did. And he did. So, so Ryan and I uh, were were dating, and um, and I was I was getting involved with. Uh, I was challenged by a mentor, a career mentor, to to get um, a hobby because he thought I was too young and too serious, and he thought I needed a hobby. And he said, MMA is not a hobby because you do it 25 hours a week and you come in here with black eyes and you're bruised all over. It's a job. And, and he's like, this is your second job. You need something that's like fun. So anyway, somebody told me that I was kind of funny, um, which was the best compliment I had gotten at that point in my life. And uh, they said, why don't you try an improv class? So I found Comedy Sports Houston uh and took level one and then level two and then they I tricked them into inviting me to audition for the team and somehow made it onto the team and I think it and was now my, you lead it don't you yeah well I I lead uh I'm the education director so we have um we have a school that we have we now offer four levels of improv when I started it was only two um, but we, uh, have expanded to four levels of improv and, um, we have a Sunday league for, uh, folks that are just interested in continuing improv. And, uh, so I kind of, uh, manage and, and run that and, uh, teach classes sometimes. Um, but we have so many great teachers. Uh, it's, it's awesome to, to just get them involved and everything. Um, but yeah, I've had a, I, it was just one of those things where I was so involved in, in improv and, and thought, this is so cool. Um, and I was so involved in just, in, in love Houston. And I was like, well, Houston to me means cancer in a good way. Um, it's, if I were to be sick with cancer, this is the place I would want to be. 
and um, but I love improv so much, and I was just like, you know, I I've just been I wanted to pray that the Lord bring an opportunity to like bring these two things together, and I prayed for like probably three years for that. We ended up moving to California, and I was like, oh well, I guess that's not gonna happen because Ryan and I moved out there. I was I got transferred, and so we were living there for a while, and I, it was still really heavy on my heart, and I was like, I just, uh, I, I think that, that, um, there's, there should be something here, Lord, and so God moved us back to Houston, and, um, I continued to pray, and continued to pray, and he, uh, plopped this, uh, cancer foundation in my lap, um, it was actually, like, just an email that somebody said, hey, do you want to sit on our board, uh, we're the Morgan Fraser Cancer Foundation and we, we need help. Do you want to come help us? And I was like, yes, also improv. <laughs> and I brought this idea of like, Hey, we should, we should bring improv to kids and families with cancer because the depression that my brother went through was so extreme. And the, the only thing that kept me from that, was the Lord Jesus Christ. And not everyone has that. And we are such a, a melting pot here in Houston. Not everyone has a support system. Um, the, the Lord is as their savior speaking to them and raising people up and talking to them. Not, not everybody has that. And the best thing that can happen and the best times that I had with my brother when he was sick were the times that we just... Honestly, it sounds bad, but we would like make fun of the nurses and we would just like, we would find something that comedy and we would just laugh. Mm -hmm. And it was like for, for like five minutes, my brother would forget that he was in between vomiting and I would forget that he wasn't around at home and that I was lonely or whatever. And so the board said yes. Yeah. They said yes. They funded the, the program, which is called comedy cures. And last year we did, I think eight or nine shows at Texas Children's Hospital. That's so um, amazing. Yeah, it's it's super cool. And, and last year we did also, we got invited to go to Camp Periwinkle, which is a camp for cancer survivors and a sibling. And so they, they want the siblings to participate and to connect. Um, and so we did a show out there and just made about 120 kids laugh. Um, what does this do to your heart when you see the the siblings with their with their sibling that has <laughs> yeah. cancer bonding and laughing does that bring you back or oh, does yeah. that make you feel a certain way it it it's like again i'm not a very sensitive person but there are there are places in my heart that the lord just has softened to like jello and that's one of them that's um, really cool and and it just it just is one of those things where if a child um has cancer or a sibling um that you know there's a sibling uh of a a child who has cancer I have all day for those kids um because I've been there I know what they're going through one of them or both of them don't feel loved and don't feel supported by mom and dad and it's not mom and dad's fault it's not their fault but when you're a kid that's who you look to right yeah and it's new to mom and dad it's it's, trying to figure out it's not cancer and all of this yeah it's like the most it's it's the most unnavigatable situation you can't do anything right as a parent at that point and you feel like you're probably failing the entire time because 
you can't protect your child from this illness. And then your other one, you're like, I'm sorry, but I have to, like, ugh. Yeah. I mean. I'm so glad to hear now, too, that there's programs that they probably didn't have back in the 90s. Yeah. That there's more now, like, this comedy for kids. Yeah. And I don't know if you know, the Ballard House is a place my yeah. mom um, is involved with that will house families that, yes. that have a cancer mm-hmm. uh, member in the family and for free, right? Or, yeah. Yeah. And they can go to MD Anderson, but live at the Ballard House. There's yeah. several different programs to yeah. help out, which I'm glad to hear. And yeah. you're one that helps lead this and it was your idea. And it's really incredible that the yeah. Lord gave you that, that he provided. Yeah. It's not without a lot of, like, you know, history of its own, right? It's just like with everything that I think um, the Lord shows up in such great ways. And when we're, um, I feel like, it, as you know, um, He takes our darkest moments and turns them into light. That's how the Lord works. Um, and uh, I'm just really thankful that He's saved my brother's life. Um I'm thankful that uh, he spoke to me the way that he did. I'm I'm so thankful. I mean that he is my friend, um, and and it just it shaped so much of of who I am for for the good and probably the bad. I mean some of the things that um, maybe are uh, fears of mine and insecurities of mine and whatnot. Um, a lot of them come from from that. And like I said. Those kids, I, I feel for the siblings of cancer patients because you, even even if you don't have my path, you are forced to grow up so quickly because sister or brother is, is in critical condition and you don't have any other way to understand it except like to, to rise to the occasion. And, and sometimes that means, um, that you kind of miss out on, on stuff. A lot of people just focus on the cancer patient as they should. Um, but the siblings are missing out on things too. They're missing out on the joy and the innocence of having brother or sister involved in their life and just playing basketball on the weekend like they did. I know when you first told me about this, I remember thinking that I've never heard of anything of any kind of program for the sibling. Yeah. And I just love that, that you have brought this to be that you, (laughs) there is something now because I'm sure that there's not many. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an overlooked, um, it's an overlooked area and I'm hoping to, um, I mean, it was definitely God put this on my heart, but there are thankfully, um, a lot of the Morgan Fraser cancer foundation leadership, um, are, good, uh, amazing, uh, folks, um, just tremendous believers. The Frazier family, Stan and Danita Frazier are, um, God fearing, God loving people. The, the, the namesake of their foundation is their child, Morgan, who they lost when she was, um, an adolescent and she, uh, died from cancer. And, and Dinita will tell everybody to this day that that she took the message from the Lord that that Morgan's cancer was about ministry to others, and that's that's their whole life is just I'm just gonna minister to families with cancer. And so there's a, there's so many people that because cancer affected them in one way or the other, whether it was the the child or their sibling or themselves or whoever it is they then are able, because of the power of the Lord, 
and t- to overcome all of this. I mean, losing a child, I can't imagine. They overcome all of this stuff, and then they're able to pour that that um, energy into helping other people and reaching other people um, with the gospel and reaching other people with just much needed joy um, in in crazy times like going through cancer. So. That's amazing. And it makes me think that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're void from the world's trouble from from cancer, from things yeah. like this. We all know this, um, especially in 2020, I feel yeah. like. Yeah. But as a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're void from life's problems. Yeah. And we all have that. But how do you turn, how do you let God turn it into something good without you know, just being bitter or angry or thinking that all of this is happening. How did you, I mean, walk me through that process of the Frasers and gosh, uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like how did it turn into something as opposed to just this thing that's in my heart? Yeah. Cause you have to allow God to let, let it, let him turn it into something, of you course. know? Yeah. 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 Um, I think that, uh, or do you have any encouragement for people that might be walking in that same kind of situation of that God is there with them and he can do something if you allow him to? Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, a lot of times, so I also love cooking, um, and baking, as you know, um, I bake many things and I try to pawn them off on other people. And they're so good. (laughs) And she knows what you bake too. She told me the ingredients in my cake once. I did. It's a secret. I'm not proud of it. It was Betty Crocker. (laughs) I do remember that. That was funny. Hmm. Is this cream cheese? Um, the two ingredients that I use. (laughs) Betty Crocker number seven and a cup of oil. Um, no, but so I, so I equate it to like, I love cooking. Um, I love baking. People say, even though I don't believe it, but I'll just use this as an example. People say baking is an exact science, right? So you have to like sift the flour in a certain way and scrape off the cup of flour and know exactly the ingredients and control everything in order to get the perfect cake, right? Mm-hmm. But cooking is much more about like, what do I got in the house? Like, open the pantry. Okay, I've got some oil here. A little I've bit of this, this thing, a little, little bit of that. that. I don't even, I've never used this. What is this? Dump it in. Sounds good. Right. So cooking is kind of like that. And I. that's how I feel that the Lord works when we just say, God, I'm going to open everything in the house. And then you just, I'll just put some stuff. And then I'm going to trust that, that it tastes good at the end. I'm going to trust that good ingredients are going to make a good outcome. And that's how I feel that, that he works. If we're able to say, Lord, I'm completely open. I, I will open every part of my heart, including the part that I blame you for. I blame you for this area of my life. I blame you for what happened to my brother. Whether I lost my brother or my brother was was uh, made it through cancer, I blame you for that, right? Um, I blame you for this moment in my life. I blame you for the situation in my marriage. I blame you for this, but I'm going to open this up. And God knows that we blame him for stuff. Like, he he knows everything. But it's when we're able to say, I'm going to open it up because I know that you need to get in there and rummage around through the oil and the sesame seeds and the flour and all that stuff. You need to get in there and do some damage in there, okay? So I'm going to open up the pantry and the fridge, and I'm going to be willing to take out anything and throw it away. Yeah. And I'm going to be willing That's to That's the key, being willing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you just, you guide me. Because I had no idea when my brother had cancer, 
I had no idea that I was going to do improv. I mean, how could I possibly know that? If God would have told me that, I probably at that point in my life would have actively avoided anything like improv because I was introverted and I still am introverted, but now I'm like much better at faking it. But I mean, I was like shy and beaten down by life and by all this stuff. But God was able to then just take me all sorts of places and do all sorts of things and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And all of a sudden, I'm able to see something that I'm like, is this, is, is this a, is this a gravy? What, what is this? Is this a sauce? What are we doing here, Lord? And then he's like, yes, this is an idea. Bam, add some salt. And then you're like, whoa, this makes perfect sense now. Yeah. But, but I, in my humanness, can never see how to put all those, those ingredients together to make something wonderful. So you're my, testing him. Yeah. So my advice to everybody is, the, I mean, as much as I can give advice, um, cause I'm still learning everything too, but I mean, it's just open it up and relax about it. Go where the Lord leads and allow him truly to lead you where you are. Know that you are his baby. You're his child. He loves you. He sheds tears with you when you are hurt. He rejoices when you rejoice and he is the proudest father and he just wants you to want him. And he wants you to go where he knows that he wants to put you. Yeah. And, and have that innocence like you did all those years ago when you were 12 at your brother's hospital bed. Praying to, I mean, if you, you were praying to him or just saying out loud yeah. and, him, and him showing up the way that he did. Yeah. yeah. Just keeping that innocence and trusting him. I love it. It's so good. <laughs> you wouldn't have met Ryan if you didn't come to Houston. No, so many things. There's there's so many things. I, I'm I'm convinced the more that I live, I'm convinced that I have less control than I actually think I do every day. I have less control and that I'm here at the Lord's will and at his mercy. And where I go and what I do, I do because he allows it and because he wants me to be there. Mm -hmm. And so if I know that God wants me to be in this hospital right now, and this is where also God wants my brother to be, then I can, I can rest assured, even though it's really scary and it's really hard and he could have died and it's still, and that truth would not change. Mm -hmm. That's a really difficult truth to hold on to, but it doesn't change just because a person comes or goes in life just because I'm afflicted with this or that, just because my marriage is on this or that level. The truth that the Lord puts me where he wants me to be, if I'm willing to open it all up and I'm going, mm-hmm. he's, he's directing me and he's guiding me, then I can rest assured that like, okay, well, he's my father. Yeah, he doesn't like to see his children suffer or be in pain, but he sees the whole big picture that we can't yes, see and this yes. beautiful painting that he is he is creating. Yeah. You know, it, it will be gorgeous if we just keep following him, like you said, yeah. and allow him to work. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your God stories. Yeah. I know you've got so many God stories, so many more that you that you could probably tell me for days, probably but 1 I just, million. <laughs> I learned so much. I loved hearing it. Is there anything else you want to share that we didn't talk about? 
Oh, no, we don't have the time. We don't have the time. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just like, um, I think this is so cool what you're doing. By the way, I meant to say this in the beginning. You're the perfect person to do a podcast because you're so naturally inquisitive and so um, so like generally interested in other people's stories and and. And you make it easy to talk to you. That's so, so kind. Um, Thank you. You should just do this all the time. <laughs> well, I'm excited. As much as I can do it, I'm doing it. Sweet. That's you awesome. Yeah. Okay. What I'm asking all of my guests, if, and I, I told you before, if there's anybody in the past or present that you could sit down with and hear their God stories, who would it be and why? Does everyone have a character from the Bible? No. Okay. Okay, it could good. be anyone. Trina okay. said her mom last week. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was going to do like full-blown like BBS. Jesus! Just kidding. Um, no, no, anyone. I, uh, it would have to be my great-grandmother. Uh, my great-grandmother Nelms. Uh, she was born in the Dust Bowl. Okay. Uh, or I should say lived in the Dust Bowl. She was born before then. And she um, was the tiniest human being I've ever seen. Uh, like frail and because she was my great grandmother so I, I knew her um, she was alive when I was a child okay and um, she was she influenced the person that I think of as my hero which is my father and she influenced my father for the good and influenced him as a Christian when his parents weren't necessarily those influences for him and my father influenced me as a Christian, and so she very much is part of my salvation and my coming to know the Lord because of what she did for my father. And she's just, she's one of those that's like, she's close to Jesus right now in heaven. Like, he's got her next next to him. Like, <laughs> she should be there. She she's She's up there, they're like probably playing checkers and like hanging out and like she's one that you're gonna be like "Mm, keep her close she's a good one um that's amazing she's just she was just she's the most beautiful nelms yes i love it eva she was just the most most beautiful woman i love that so much yeah Probably not over 70 pounds. She just was the sweetest, the sweetest lady. Um, I love her. That's so, so good. Yes, I'm excited to see her one day. Oh, yeah. Yes, awesome. Well, thanks, Jordan. Yes, thanks for having me. Good luck with the, the rest of your podcast. I'm excited to listen to future guests. Thank you. <laughs>